0: Welcome to Artcast, a new podcast presented by Matt G, artist and subject leader for fine art at Morley College. The decision to do this podcast was inspired by photographs taken from the polio outbreak in the 1940s, where students were being remotely taught by radio. This podcast will be a series of informal discussions with artists about their work, lifestyle, and how they have adapted during the current crisis we live in. The aim is to disseminate material for students by limiting screen time and providing a feed of information for when they are taking a break from the screen. My second guest is Matthew Burroughs, who will be talking to our HE students and then giving a talk, which will also be public facing on the 24th of March. Stay tuned for this. Check the Morley website in the events section to book this. Matthew has run several artist support initiatives over the years, including an artist mentor scheme. Artist Support Projects is an artist peer development program established by Matthew Burrows in 2008 to support, create and maintain critical engagement in networks for artists. The program was first run as the Artists Boot Camp, ABC, and invitation-only series of events. The demand for its rigorous and experimental approach has led to the evolution of artist support projects. Exhibitions include curated shows and artist support projects, studio program. Artist support projects operates within an ethos of trust, creative generosity, and critical rigor, fostering opportunity for its members and wider artist community. Past related projects include the Observer Building Gallery Hastings, contributing and advising on Press Play, an artist training programme at Spike Island Bristol, run by Emma Gregory. So, this time last year, things were getting pretty terrifying for everyone, and with artists facing the prospect of no income uh, for at least three months, Matthew came up with the artist support pledge overnight, creating a new art market. Works should be priced at £200, so they're affordable to sell right now, but enough money to create income for artists while they pledge to pay for another work from another artist for each of the five works that they sell. Matthew was awarded an MBE last year and personality of the year with Apollo magazine for his efforts in supporting artists during these Incredibly uncertain times. Matthew is represented by Vigo Gallery, and to quote their description on his work, one has to be careful not to take this literally. Burroughs speaks through analogy and metaphor. His paintings may or may not be landscapes or figures. Their titles suggest reference to the mystic's landscape of solitude and temptation, a paradise of emptiness and rage, a country of madness and silence. Burroughs' paintings are reflective, thoughtful, and slow to reveal complex structural spaces filled with marks, shapes, and pigment. The paintings on board use thin washes of oil paint scrubbed and scratched into and across the surface, creating strange half-states where colours and images hover on the edge of description. Painting on gesso grounds, Burroughs creates an unusual softness across the hard and porous surfaces, fast and slow, thick and thin, rough and smooth. He finds his reality in paradoxes and thresholds rather than objective certainties. For Burroughs, the work of painting is in making us whole with all our failings and idiosyncrasies. These paintings make themselves vulnerable, they display their faults and wounds without shame. They leave unmade their form and surface, finally asking for our participation in putting them and us together. Welcome, Matthew. Uh welcome to the show. Um and first question is just simply what what's your favorite colour?
1: Thank you, Matt. I'm really pleased to be here. Um my favorite colour, this one's a difficult one. Um, it changes all the time. So it can be elusive. I think I'd have to say green, and only because it's the colour that has the greatest range for the human eye. So I'd have the most possibilities if that's the only colour I could choose. Um, I, I tend to think of colour more as a sort of set of characters, that a certain red has a particular character, a certain blue has a particular character. So I tend not to think of one as being my favourite, but I, I, at different times I do tend to kind of, Use a particular or favour a particular colour while I explore it and explore its character, but that changes. So at the moment it's blue, but it could be a, a deep red next week.
0: Okay, great. And what sort of music are you listening to at the moment? Do you have any particular music for for getting yourself into the zone in your working practice?
1: Uh, it really varies, actually, um, considerably. I mean, I listen to all sorts, from classical to pop and rock, and at the moment, actually, because my my year has been slightly unusual, <laughs> I've been slightly inundated with extra work. So, keeping a kind of calm head throughout the day is is tricky. So, I move between listening to kind of kind of chanting monks that tend to keep me calm, and people like David Bowie and uh, it was Leonard Cohen this morning because I really love them and I love listening to them. But I, I find that a lot of it at the moment is, you know, trying to find music that will kind of keep me focused and, and keep me in line and, and not allow me to get carried away with myself.
0: That's interesting with the, the point you make about the monks. I was actually going to ask if how much, if at all, uh, mindfulness sort of plays a role in your practice or in, in terms of like ways we adapt, obviously, during lockdown. I know that a lot of people have perhaps started that off as a process but um yeah I'm just sort of also thinking about what I've heard about some of your initiatives whereby you talk to artists about creating this this compass that you talk about and I, I just wanted to if you could perhaps talk a little bit about how how mindfulness plays a role in in what you talk about and the work you make
1: yeah I think I mean I think of it really less as sort of mindfulness although obviously that is a description you could give it and more about approaching who you are and what you do as an artist wholly. So you're not just a physical entity or an intellectual entity or an emotional entity. You're all of those things together. And really, I think, you know, a sort of definition of mindfulness might be about trying to find a a kind of productive cooperation between all all of our sense of self uh, and awareness of self and awareness of the world around us. And I think often where artists go off piece and they start losing their relationship to their work and and their interest in what they're doing is because they've lost that ability to navigate that. And that's really where the idea, the compass comes in, is if you know where your north is, if you know what um, is driving you, then it's much easier to navigate any sort of, artistic or intellectual or emotional terrain that you might find yourself in. And I, I think of the, the compass really, if you think of the North as all the things that are kind of positive in what you do. So they're the things that give you joy, if you like, they're the things that drive your enthusiasm and your motivation and the South, they're all the things that destroy that motivation, that enthusiasm for what you do. So whenever you're navigating that landscape, if you know where your North is, it's much easier to find your way around and knowing that and knowing what those, those things are and, and nurturing them really helps. And I think too often, certainly at a, you know, at a lower, at a a student level, when you're starting out, it's very easy to get sidelined by other people's compass, if you like, by what their interests are, what excites them or, or what their values are. And it's really important that you learn to develop your own and that you're, you're you learn to be confident in what they are. So that's really where the idea of the compass comes in.
0: Okay, great. Thanks. So in the interest of mirroring your sort of open and diplomatic ways, I'm going to be taking questions from people regarding your various initiatives. And so just to start off with, Susie would like to know what your biggest achievement is so far or what you'd consider your biggest achievement.
1: My biggest achievement? Well, I, I suppose I'd have to say it's our support pledge. Um, I, I, you know, I would never have dreamed of having been able to do what I've done with that. Um, and I hadn't planned on achieving what I've achieved with it. So, you know, how do I top that? I, I don't know whether I could in terms of, you know, supporting and helping friends and colleagues across the world, I don't think you get a better thing than having done that, really. But outside of that, as an artist, I think really, you know, there's lots of things I've done as an artist, but I think the thing that maybe I sense has been my biggest achievement is developing a sense of who I am as an artist and having kind of a sense of confidence in that. And it sounds really easy, but actually anyone who's tried to do it for a few decades will know that it's it's actually much harder than it looks. And the, the longer you do it, the more you realize that it's, it's vulnerable and that it's um, what you thought it might have been, you know, five or 10 years ago. Maybe isn't because that was influenced by outside factors that you weren't aware of at the time. So I think navigating that, developing the skills to understand it and having a sense and a grasp of what that is, I think really, for me, feels like a huge achievement.
0: So you mentioned in Art Review last month about the doors to the gatekeepers uh, being subverted. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts are based on this today, uh, right now, and sort of thinking about that as a whole concept as we start to think about normal life resuming I've got a couple of thoughts from people. So Alistair from London says he'd be interested to know how he thinks platforms like the Artist Support Pledge might change past etiquette in how artists sell work online and even represent themselves. And following on from this, another artist wants to add to this. uh, Chris from London gives some feedback and a question. So on, his, on on your website, you state it's not enough to speak of change. Art must furnish and colour our imaginations with the means to make change possible. So he goes on to saying, artist support pledge certainly acted as a socialised movement for artists, many of whom saw themselves falling between the cracks in the government's COVID-19 support schemes due in part to the nature of their self-employment status, their earnings and the precarious nature of zero hour contracts. So offering an alternative to the gallery system or lack of state support, funding for creatives, if we are to realise true and meaningful change through art in terms of both recognition and paid opportunities for emerging artists and within the wider context of society, what do you see as the next steps? And should emerging and lesser represented artists be aspiring towards their practice and their role within society?
1: Yeah, I mean there's a lot to cover there. I think um I think in a way one of the one of the problems that I was able to sort of look at when COVID-19 hit and you know the sort of proverbial gatekeepers left the gate was it it gave opportunity for people to rethink. And you know very early on, people were sort of asking me, you know, is this a sort of alternative to the to the normal art market? And I, I don't see it like that at all, really, because I mean, I work in the normal art market, and if you're making large scale, ambitious work that's expensive to make and expensive to sell, it's it's an effective way of doing that uh, because that needs negotiating and that needs you know people who are expert at doing that. Um, but I always I've always found it perplexing in a way that. The art market sort of has this almost one-dimensional way of doing things. That's the only way it does it. Um, And yet artists do a lot of things. You know, they make a lot of things, and they have a lot of stuff lying around their studio that very often doesn't make it into the mainstream art market. And the reason it simply doesn't make it onto gallery walls is there's not enough profit. There isn't enough profit in the sale of, you know, smaller works, for the gallery to invest in that sale, for them to administer the sale, to deal with any promotion on that sale, by the time they have their taken their fee out of that sale, it's, there's no profit margin. So that's why you see the prices in you know, mainstream galleries been what they are, because there's an awful lot that goes into getting that work on the wall and sold. But it doesn't mean that, you know, I've often thought, been perplexed by this idea that, well, what do we do with the rest of it? What do we do with all this work that can't make it into the gallery system, um, but is sitting around in the artist's studio? And I mean, for years, I've been thinking about this. I've, I'd never really thought about it seriously in terms of trying to create another economy. But when COVID-19 hit and I knew that this was going to be a desperate situation, It was the first thing that came to mind because I thought, well, we've all got it. You know, most artists have loads of works sitting in drawers and portfolios that is very rarely going to be seen and sold through the normal market system. So in a way, all I had to do was come up with a, a viable economic model that would work, but also be really effective. So it had to generate income quickly. And I knew, you know, there are already you know, web-based platforms out there selling art. It's I'm not. It's not new that I came up with that. What was new in a way was I came up with the idea of the pledge, because I realised that most market economies in, in the modern world work on you know this the kind of usual kind of legal contract, if you like. Here's I give you this set of goods and you exchange that for, for cash and that's the legal contract. Now, those sorts of systems, whilst they work, they're very slow. They're not very, you know, to invest in that and to develop that as an economy is, is a very slow way of doing something. So if I was just to do that, I would be competing with lots of other platforms out there who are already in existence. And, uh they're not really generating immediate income for the artists that, well, many of them aren't, that would need it right now. So I thought, okay, it's got to generate money really quickly. And the quickest way of generating any form of transaction is not legally, but culturally. So you do it by developing a kind of cultural contract, if you like, that people buy into a set of behavior and a set of ideas. Because as soon as you... Agree to that, you've bought into it. you don't have to go through any process. It's just okay, yeah, I'll do that. job done so it was enabled me to sort of develop a kind of economic a sort of an economy really quickly, so transactions flowed on the day rather than you know in a week's time or a month's time, because I knew artists needed the money you know this week, not not in a month or three months um so it's a a convenient way of doing that, really. It was something I really believed in. I've been sort of looking at it, sort of researching it for years as well.
0: Yeah, I think it's the fact that it's it's a it's guided as a price point is is one of the really strong points of the of the pledge. And I think that's definitely something that artists sometimes are unsure about how much to price their work at. But with a, with a target point of price at two hundred, that might be, for instance, something that someone sells their most priciest work at so they can put that in or other artists can think about ways of scaling their work down to make a more more affordable piece to aim for that that 200 price point so that that works really well in that sense
1: yeah i think i mean that was i think in a way that was that the the part of the equation of the economy that i think allowed it to take off because there was no negotiating on the price in a way and that's something that often makes people are very nervous because artists who are already established are not going to want to start negotiating on the price. But if you say to them, look, this is the price. Now, I know it's going to be lower than your normal market price, but in engaging in this and participating in it, you are helping to support your peers across the world. So there's a common good activity going on in it. And for artists who may not be selling work at that price, might be lower than that, or that's their highest price, like you say, they can still participate on an equal playing field with others. So straight away, it gets rid of all the hierarchies that, in a way, cloud so much of what is in the art market and cloud our value systems. Uh, And it actually makes it much easier just to sort of say, okay, well, that's the price and I'm contributing and I'm supporting and being supported by this this pledge and this this economy and this this community
0: yeah and it's nice to be able to give artists the opportunity to be be a patron really and support support the arts at the same time
1: yeah I mean I think you know that the the power of patronage for the artists I hadn't really anticipated actually I I I obviously knew that it would be meaningful to artists but the desire for artists to reach their pledge so they could buy another piece of work was strong, you know, and it really motivated people to, to get work on and to get it sold and to sort of look around for what they, they wanted to buy and purchase from others. And it, that sort of has t- two parts to it really, because, you know, some people say, why, why have the pledge at all? Why not just let anybody buy the work? But you see there's there's a couple of reasons for it really. One is that it invests in the community the fact that generosity is central to everything that it does, not only what you put on, but how you contribute back into its community. But also, artists tend to buy differently than non-artists because they're they know the, the they know their the topography, the terrain of the art world, much better than anybody else does. They know the other artists who aren't well-known. They know the artists who don't have a gallery. And they'll know what they want to purchase. So they won't have to be told what to purchase. They'll know it's out there. They'll, they'll be aware of its existence. So in a way, what that does is it it brings money in. You know, The money comes from the outside, if you like, by people buying work that they want to buy. And then artists spread that money across its community by buying work that might not normally be bought externally to it. So it's sort of a double a double economy in a way that allows money to filter much more horizontally across across the network.
0: OK, great. So next up, Steve from London says, would you please elaborate on Instagram over the past year becoming a successful alternative primary art market? As someone who has seen this develop at the forefront, is there reason to believe this could be a continued approach post-pandemic? If so, is it inevitable by choosing support to support artists via Instagram long-term that we hand over control market value trends to a company as powerful as Facebook? He also adds that he's a teacher and becoming increasingly curious as to the impact of social media could have on students' understanding of what art can be.
1: Yeah, um, I, I would really hate to see the day when the only way people engage in art is on social media. I, I think that would be a, a disaster. And that Instagram, I used Instagram because it was a convenient tool. And I don't think, I actually don't think of our support pledge being Instagram. It's just it was the most direct and convenient way of delivering this within a, a period of time when we couldn't physically interact. Because actually, the concept of art support pledge could happen anywhere. It could happen within a studio complex. It could happen within a gallery. Um, really, it's about that mutual system of support. And that you know, Instagram was the tool I chose to use because it was the simplest way of doing it. And I had sort of a mantra right at the beginning that this had to be light touch and effective. It had to be easy to do because you know I'm a team of one. And it had to work; otherwise, there was no point doing it. It was no—it wasn't a vanity project. It actually had to deliver and put money in people's bank accounts and food on their table. Uh, if it couldn't do that, then it wasn't worth my effort. So, you know, I, I looked for the best tools for doing that, and you know, a hashtag was the most convenient way of doing it. I mean, there's two things really with that. Um, Going forward, you know, do we hand it over to Facebook? Well, certainly I wouldn't like to. (laughs) Um, I think, you know, I'm fully aware or have been fully aware all the way through this really of the dangers of, you know, shifts in the way that algorithms work and, you know, how they work. So, you know, I've been constantly looking at how to sort of navigate that and create a fairer system across uh, social media. So, you know, number of the things that I do to do that is the in view post which I ask people on the pledge to post up to seven artists who they look at on the hashtag on their account under the the red tile of in view so what that does in a way is it draws their buyers or people who are looking at their work to look at the people they're looking at so it, it gets around the algorithms of social media. It stops the algorithms telling you what to look at, and it enables you to say, if "You go my account. You look at my work, and if you like my work, there's a good chance you're going to be interested in what I'm looking at." So you look at, you see what I look at, and then if you look at their work and follow who they're looking at, it does the same. So in a way, it's about the artist having agency and saying, "Look, I I value this work. Go and have a look at it," rather than Facebook saying. Go and look at this. We want you to buy it because they're the people who are our clients and pay us our wages. So you know, it's 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 using in a way using their systems in a really simple way to actually help the artists have a bit more agency within the complexities of the the dark arts of algorithms. Um, and I, you know, I I, I can't I, I wouldn't attempt to defend sort of you know those parts of social media which are problematic and there's parts of it that really do concern me and especially the fact that so much of it is set up to confirm our bias whether that be our expectations of what we want to see or uh, the things we desire to see and I think the that might sound really simple but the effect of that on society and community is really damaging We've seen that in politics in America at the moment where, you know, a large part of America's culture are now incapable of having reasonable intellectual debate because they can only see things through the eyes of bias. I want it to be like this or I desire it to be like this rather than actually looking at how it is. So, you know, that is always a danger with the way social media works. And it's something, you know, I'm super aware of doing this. But the way I see it, the way I think about social media is it's a tool. And, you know, if you think of it as like a hammer, you can take a hammer and build a house with it and give someone a home, or you can destroy somebody's home with it. It's up to you what you do with it. So really, I think of our support pledge as just a sort of set of values and ideas and Behavioural kind of request Say, look, behave like this, and we'll all survive. So that's all it is. It's just a request to lead. You know, I lead by example. I say, look, do it like this, and more of us will survive this difficult
0: period. Yeah, social media's can be a great tool. It's it's something that was invented and developed by people with the best of intentions, and obviously, it's something that people within society have used to manipulate and um, yeah do not so great things. But yeah, it is is vital at all. But um it's a good tool. And uh following on from that, I was wondering in terms of maintaining the integrity of the hashtag and 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 one one year on from when you started the pledge really, have you got a specific to-do list that you sort of think about? Or like I don't know. I'm just curious as to see how how it will develop or even evolve. Um because I think obviously it's a response to the pandemic, but it's, it's something that's been so powerful and and generated so much happiness for people all over the world so I was just wondering if you if you envisaged it as a as a sort of permanent structure going forward
1: yeah I I mean the thing is it's so in a way now it's so big I can't stop it um what what I all I can do is maintain it and develop its health and I, I think of it like that in a way I think of it as sort of I can nurture it but I can't stop it and I can't force it to be something that it isn't because really what it is is it's a community it's a a joined up sets of communities and individuals that are joined by this shared agreement to support one another through this simple formula and what I spend my time doing really is maintaining the integrity of that and to do that there's a number of things i have to do one is is managing the hashtag itself so it's keeping the hashtag as clean as possible so messaging people who misuse it um politely requesting that they don't misuse it um and 99% of the time they don't know they're doing that so uh, you know i i'm really diplomatic in how i do it because ultimately anyone's allowed to use it it's not it's not illegal to to misuse it um but obviously it has it has a a damaging effect on its usability if people misuse it. So buyers have a bad experience of looking at it if they can't actually find the work they want to buy because there's so many people misusing it that every time they click on something, it's not actually something for sale. So making sure that people use it properly and that they use it effectively. So they actually give clear information about what it is and how it works. And don't assume that everybody knows because That just spreads confusion. And if you spread confusion across the system, it makes its economy ineffective because people then coming to it don't know what to do. You know, if you're a buyer coming on and there's just some random image with a hashtag, you're not going to know what to do. You're going to have to be informed by the person using it. So it's up to everybody on it to be responsible for its good health. So, really, I spend a bit of time doing that. I spend a lot of time doing, um, kind of pr for it really which are interviews podcasts uh, writing interviews doing articles webinars um, all sorts i mean i do that at its peak i was doing five or six a day um and that was literally back to back nonstop. uh because and it was all over the world it still is pretty much all over the world i still do stuff you know in america one day i mean some weeks i'm in a different country every day doing um doing an interview or, or podcast or webinar or something and keeping that message out there and telling people what it is and how it works, that's part of what keeps it going, you know, and it's a lot of work doing that because it's, you know, not only do I have to deal with all of the, um, you know, emails and messages and setting up that, but I've got to deliver it as well. So, you know, the to-do list is full of lots of little things like that. And then there's just, just the general content of keeping it going, you know, if you just do the same thing every day, it gets boring and people get bored of it. So I'm constantly having to navigate a relationship between consistency, that people can see what it is because it's consistent enough for them to recognize it, but also that it's, it's also changing and developing. So there's something new and exciting coming up all the time so that they can say, okay, this is still, this is still relevant. It's still urgent. It's still got some validity it's still got some room to play, that it's um, it's not static, if you like. So getting that right is, is tricky, you know, Because so, and, and also, you know, because I'm having to navigate that on my own and deal with my own energy levels and how much I can commit to that and, um, you know, how enthousi- enthusiastic I am about doing something. So, you know, keeping that together is... Uh, is a job in itself, you know. I mean, I, I'm kind of quite good at doing that. So I think it's I'm sort of quite well-equipped for it. But it's, you know, doing that through lockdown when it's not really been possible to have sort of an effective team of people working with me to do it. But certainly on my going forward on my to-do list, um, really it's about having help. So as soon as we're able to, I'm going to be getting people in to actually help me do it and help manage the account and develop it. And also, you know, two things. One, to develop the organisation so that it it can be more sustainable and also um, to develop its possibilities because, you know, is is it possible to take this into other arenas, into other industries? Uh, Now, you know, I'm not an expert in other industries, even in the arts, so it's hard for me to see the chinks in the armour of their systems to be able to see where there's an opening and an opportunity to develop these micro economies that can help sustain things
0: yeah because one great thing is it's called the artist support pledge so it's it's not it's not called the the COVID-19 relief and and you could argue and definitely something I'd believe in is that it's been needed for a long time we just we just no one's just uh done it and then you've done it yourself in response to the the pandemic so it is something that you could argue it's been needed for many, many years, and yeah, that's quite interesting that you he to hear talk about other industries as well because obviously it's not just the art industry that has a level of inequality it's, it's 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 other industries as well and um yeah, it sounds great really, and I think it's something that definitely should continue for, for years to come really so I was gonna talk about art education and how it's it's suffered a lot from what the government believes that we need in a society um, and sort of having to constantly justify the economic benefits that culture brings um, despite the, there being very clear economic benefits and mental health benefits for the general well-being of, of society. Uh, so we shouldn't really have to justify the benefits of, of our education but um, but there is a clear misunderstanding of the importance in particular of maybe a diagnostic foundation course um, sort of the structure that was inspired by by bauhaus um, and this is this structure whereby students are encouraged to spend a year experimenting um, working before they go on to a degree so if you could introduce one particular thing to arts education across the board worldwide uh, what would it be and just considering that this would actually be mandatory, so it'd be something that would be enforced by the government um, into into institutional uh, curriculums. So, what would you say? In a way, I think you've just described it. I think a
1: mandatory year of experimentation should be compulsory for everyone, not just art students. I think everyone in every facet of education would benefit from a year spent exploring and playing with the very basic structures and materials of a number of subjects surrounding their core interest. Because fundamentally, that's what human thought is. And that one of the problems we have with education, and this then impacts on our art education, is that our school system, our education system, was developed for industrial society. It was developed to create people to service a mechanized industrial society. So it doesn't, in effect, what it wants is machines. It wants people to, to be able to use and be like machines. So it's, everything in it is emphasized on that and predicated on the idea that we just need you to do X, Y and Z. We actually don't want you to think. We don't want you to rethink anything. We don't want you to play with it. We just want you to do it. And that's been part of our education system for, for, you know, over 100 years. And we've struggled to step out of that as as we've gone into a more technological age and as we're now seeing that actually technology needs its creative people as well. It needs those people who can think outside the box. We are struggling to kind of Move into a way of thinking about that, I think, educationally. To think that technology isn't just about data and information, but it's about what you do with it. It's about a mindset in how you approach data and information. So I think that really what I would do is I'd start at the beginning and actually I'd put creativity at the center of all of our learning from day one. As soon as you go to school, creativity is the the foundation of every learning experience because fundamentally all human beings are creative it's the one thing that we all have in common when we want when we need to learn something we play with it we are we, we manipulate it we turn it upside down put it on its head we we try to understand what it is and by doing that we get a sounder understanding of its limitations. And only when we know that can we really utilize it as a tool or as, a, as data or information, whatever else. So I think I, I would move away from kind of uh, an in a way kind of exam orientated, information orientated system where we're treat, creating students to be conformist, if you like, to a creative system. Where we're teaching them to think and to rethink and to learn and to learn to learn so that they can continue learning. And I think actually the great thing about, say, foundation courses. is I think foundation courses in the arts are one of the best things about art education, because it's the first time that for most young people, they are given that ability and that freedom and the consent to say, go and play seriously. Go and do it and really enjoy it and do it like it matters. And it's for, for a lot of young people, that's. Hugely important, and I think that you know it's massively important for, for the for art education and for artists later. I'd like to see that continue. Really, I'd like to see that you know reeled out more later on in in art education that there are periods of mandatory play and experimentation. I mean, I I've, I've developed that in my own work as as a professional artist over the last twenty five years. I now every now and again I give myself a week or two weeks to experiment and I do in effect like a little mini foundation course for myself where I'll invest in some new materials or stuff I've never used before and I just play with it for a week or two then I go back to kind of my normal studio day job if you like Um, and I found it a really important part of development as an artist that it's not just okay I've worked out what I am as an
0: artist carry on doing it for the rest of my life I think if you do that you'll soon burn out Yeah I'm honoured to be teaching on a foundation course at the moment and it's one of those things when well during normal times where you meet people from all walks of life and they say oh there's nothing creative about me that I'm I'm not creative or and I, I just always say to them I guarantee you are but you just haven't haven't highlighted the parts that you do that are creative and I think it's even if it's like cooking for instance like cooking is so creative and you know, was it Michelangelo that once said that every piece of marble is a sculpture we just haven't found out yet we just haven't actually realized its potential so yeah I think like a year where everyone can literally figure out what being creative is and just playing and, and experimenting that, that would be that would be great across society
1: I think especially now as well, you know, moving forward, you know, I think a government that can recognize that protecting assets right now is not going to lead to the changes and to the developments we need moving into an uncertain world. The most important skills we can have right now is creativity and agility, the ability to move lightly and to maneuver ourselves responsibly and res- And responsively, so we can see what the situation is and respond to that situation in new and interesting ways. Because the the, the communities, the societies, and the countries that do that will be the ones that survive. And the ones that fail will be the ones that just batten down the hatches and pretend that nothing's happened and go back to the same old ways of doing things. It's it's a safety mechanism. You know, I, I can understand why governments do that, because it's built into the state system that their job is to protect society, to protect it, you know, whether that's legally or militarily or whatever. So it's it's completely you know built into their mindset. But sometimes, you know, the best thing you can do to protect the health of your community is to allow that community to be stronger in itself, to allow it to be to, to encourage and nurture its true true talents and true skills. And I think, you know, that's where we are in danger right now is that if we don't do that across the board, you know, I think, you know, we could be in a situation in, in two years, five years' time where we fail to respond to the urgency of the situation.
0: Yeah, I think flexibility, being resilient and adaptable they're all qualities that you're, you're taught on an art foundation really and um i mean i noticed particularly over the last few, three lockdowns the first one in particular a lot of people um who hadn't previously made art were taking it up and finding the confidence to do that as well which is really nice um so it's sort it's, of it works as a real mechanism for solitude but also yeah developing problem problem solving skills and diplomacy and, yeah, all these things are very important.
1: I, I mean, you must see this, you know, on foundation course that it, you know, it's only a year, but I'm always amazed how rapidly and quickly people flourish in that system because they're given that freedom and they're nurtured within that freedom. You know, that, I think that kind of, you know, it's not a freedom that's just, you know, here you go, we're going to are going to ignore you now. It's a freedom where, you know, they give them opportunity and uh, the the material kind of intellectual material to work with and then said look go away and and play with it I think that's that's really really significant you know and and a great joy to see it when you see it
0: yeah and at at Morley we have uh, different pathways so it that the standard sort of fine art visual communication fashion so so they have opportunities to to collaborate and look at each other's different approaches really but yeah so that's really exciting as well the next question was if you could design one handout that was mandatory in all education what would that look like Um, so when I'm thinking of handouts I'm sort of thinking about sort of things to facilitate education really so a a photocopy outlining it could be guidance rules ideas um, things to sort of stimulate working working practice really
1: I think there's two things, really, that I would make mandatory as a handout or certainly the two things that have kept me going and developing. One is drawing. I mean, you can't beat drawing. There isn't a better way of thinking than drawing. And I think that goes across the board. I mean, I think drawing should be as important in school as writing, arguably more important because it's a more fluid and flexible way of thinking because it's not so dependent on the sign, the symbolic nature of language and written language. But I think as a handout, I think the things that I wish I'd been, and I'd understood or been asked earlier on in my career or been made clear to me is, I guess, three things. One is to nurture three aspects of who I am as an artist, and as a human being. One is my passions. So, Know what your passions are. Go away and work them out. What are you really passionate about? And then look after them and nurture them and feed them and be responsive to them because they might change. But really try to understand what your drivers are, what gets you the morning? what excites you, what you love reading about, watching movies about. What are the things that are really important to your life? Because they will shape what you become if you allow them to shape what you, you will become. And all artists who, who, who do well, they're really good at that. They're really good at knowing their passions. I think the other thing is similar in a way, and that's knowing your values. And I would, as an artist, probably put these into two. I'd say, what are your life values? What are the things that really matter to you in life? And also what are your work, your work values? What are the things that matter in your work? Now, they probably might, they're probably quite similar And they might overlap, but one will be more sort of artwork-centred and one more about, you know, how you live your life. Um, And I always try to get those down sort of three each, so I kind of know sort of three main life values and three main work values because, again, you know, they're not not rules. They can be fluid and you can change them. But you need to nurture them and look after them and and invest in them. What do they really mean and what does that – How does that really affect what I am? Because if you really know what is core to you, if you really know what your values are, it's much easier then to negotiate your relationship to criticism, say. So if somebody says to you or gives you some feedback on your work, if that helps to, you know, and open up what your values are and inform those values and build on them and and make them broader and stronger and deeper, then you can work with it. But if that, if that critique is just sitting there hanging in the air, it's quite hard to know what to do with it. If it's well put, if someone has has made a critique of your work and they've they're really articulate, sometimes it can sway you in a way that is not appropriate. Because you think, okay, well, they made a, they made a convincing case of it. They must be right. But they might not be. You know, sometimes the most inarticulate people can say the things that are the most profound so you know knowing your values helps you to kind of understand your relationship to that and also understand your relationship to your passions because if your if your values and your passions kind of correlate and have a a, a good relationship then your your work has strong foundations to be built on and then the third thing I'd say is is to nurture your weaknesses. Now, this is fairly unusual, I guess, because most people would say nurture your strengths. But actually, it's your weaknesses that give you the greatest potential of creativity, not your strengths. Your strengths you have, you are strong at doing something. And as you work and develop, your strengths will just get stronger. But actually, it's when we are confronted with our challenges, with the things that we can't do, that we're not very good at, that we will find the point where we have to be creative in response to something and we have to innovate our way out of the situation. Because if we know the way out and if we are already good at doing that, then we'll just fly over it and we won't really focus, we won't develop, in effect, the necessary awareness to really move on to do something, create something new. So I think those three things, to nurture your passions, your values and your weaknesses and work on them, and look at them, and examine them, and be aware of them, um, I think are really important.
0: That sounds good, and I guess that's something that could potentially take some time on a foundation course, particularly when school education system might be, might be over the last few years certainly, have been stripped back to the point where, say a student, I mean myself for instance, i I went through school just having one art teacher, who was actually a brilliant teacher, but i guess it was only one voice so uh, i guess some students might come to a foundation or at that level and they might have you know not actually really considered what their values are might have just been trying to you know fill the fill the uh, certain criteria uh trying to to maybe conform with one particular teacher that they have so i guess that's something t- giving people confidence to understand what their values truly are rather than using it as something to jump for a hoop but actually what they actually believe
1: i think that's where the foundation course really matters as well because you get that opportunity to spend some time examining different approaches to the world and i think that is and even different values And by playing with that imaginatively, you get a better sense of who you are. So I think, you know, it's not about sort of nailing your values down and then just ignoring everything else. That's why I think the nurturing matters. You know, it's about sort of saying, okay, my my values are always going to be kind of fluid in a way, but they will probably be fairly consistent. But to nurture them, you need to experiment with them, play with them, and see how flexible and agile and resilient they are. And I think that you know, that's why having those times to experiment, even for me now, really helps me to cement and to understand what really matters to me. So you know, if I'm making something out of clay, um, it should manifest the same values that are inherent in who I am as a human being, as does if I was working with wood or with paint or with digital media. I am the same human being, and it's the same world outside. Um, the materials are different, so you know i have to i 'd have to find appropriate ways to manipulate those materials, but actually, I think that can really help to sort of help you understand what really matters and I think sometimes where it goes wrong is that people learn a particular skill and they think that that skill is everything it's just one skill you can learn lots of skills as an artist, and that if you you know if that skill is not flexible enough and agile enough. And if you don't have a broad enough range of skills, the danger is is that you misread and misplace that skill as your values. Actually, they're not. It's just a skill. It's a use of something. Um, whilst important, it is only you know the ability to use something.
0: Thank you. So. Moving on now, uh, post-COVID, a uh, much bigger issue is climate change uh, and world resources. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how artists can address this issue in terms of raising awareness. It's obviously very important, but also in terms of their own practice and things that they could do to address the issue of, of climate change.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is I think this is a one of the most interesting debates at the moment for, for the arts. And, you know, on, on a number of levels. One on a on a sort of basic level, that the arts market is not particularly environmentally friendly. Um, you know, we ship huge amounts of work all over the world to go to art fairs. Um, and I know why we do that. And you know, it is a model that 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 has financially been set up and works. But I think we're going to have to start rethinking what how to do that. I don't have an answer to that, but I mean, I think that's something that is inevitable. We, we do need to be more responsible. Uh, and there are, you know, over the last year, interestingly, that there is evidence that that is starting to happen in the arts. But I think actually, you know, what I, as an artist, I don't particularly like doing is, is passing the book to somebody else as a problem. You know, I don't think it's helpful to sort of say, well, OK, it's, it's the gallery's problem to deal with. With climate change or it's a museum's problem, or even that it's a museum or gallery's problem to deal with you know solving you know artists' financial states, I think we all have to participate in making sure that everything works so I think from an artist's point of view, I think really it's about um I think values again I mean it's you know art art in a way manifests the beliefs and the values of a society. It tells, it shows, it puts a mirror up to society and says, this is what you look like. This is how you think, behave. This is what you believe. And, you know, if you think about the way the art world works and the art market works, it shows us our value system. You know, if you look at a a cave painting of a hand on a wall, it's telling you something about whoever made that mark on a wall and their relationship to their natural environment, that, the, that nature mattered to them, that their relationship to, math, that to nature was central to their relationship to making art or whatever they called it. If our relationship to making art is just to put it in big tents with huge amounts of numbers after the first number, um, then actually that's telling us something not particularly good about what art really stands for. And I think, really, we all, all of us as artists, um, have to sort of take some responsibility for that. That we have to sort of say, okay, how do we reconnect to what really matters? Because if we connect to what matters, if we can't find a way of connecting to that, there's a natural order that na- our human nature and wild nature are symbiotically related. And that is, in, you know. Central to our understanding of who we are as artists, then that becomes what we are as human beings. That becomes what we are as society, as a community. And in a way, you know, it's 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 almost it's one of those difficult things. It's sort of a chicken and egg situation. If art manif- does art manifest your beliefs, or does do your beliefs are your beliefs manifest from art? Now, I think the reality is, is it's both. But you have to start where you are. And I think we start by as artists sort of saying, okay, what matters? What do I value? What is my relationship to the world? And if my relationship to the world is just about making lots of money at the expense of somebody else, and expense of the planet, then I think that should be questioned, and that is questionable. So really it's in our hands to sort of put our hand back on the you know, metaphorical cave wall, and reconnect, and and that is part of our job as artists. I mean, I'm not saying it's an easy. There's an easy answer to it, um, but that if it was an easy answer, it wouldn't be interesting. Finding creative and exciting and new solutions to that that are both humanly consistent with our human nature, but also innovative and creative enough that they respond to the nowness of the dilemma we are in you know as a species within a particular society and within a position in terms of our the environmental issues that we currently have.
0: Yeah I was, I was listening to a, a way of um, council in particular in Berkshire that had a, a sculpture commission and it was based on a vote taken from the general public in that area on which their favorite sculpture would be because I guess at the end of the day they were the ones that were going to live with it so in that sense that's like that's like human nature uh sort of being very diplomatic so I guess it's the sort of ways of finding things of doing that really ways of helping people improve the environment that they live in and live around within but also yeah figuring out ways of sustainable practice I guess and also ways of promoting that to to the the community.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the other thing that I think I've started to really think about over the last few years is the relationship of culture to nature. There's always been this sort of sense that, you know, they're two separate entities. You know, nature is the stuff that goes on outside, and culture is this human thing. And I think that's a mistake, actually. And I think that it's it's a mistake on a number of levels. It's a mistake because it's not really the way it is. We are nature too you know, human nature is nature. It isn't separate from nature. It is just that we are able to be aware of that relationship. And that actually, even the word culture becomes problematic. I mean, it comes from the word to till, which means to control the land, you know, to actually till the land, to control it and to control nature. And I actually think in a way, if you look at kind of, pre-industrial society and pre-culture there was still art you know art was still made pre-tilling pre that sort of agricultural agrarian society and it was a much more symbiotic relationship between what whatever art was called in those days whatever culture might have been called and the natural world outside and in a way i think that's the way we need to start relating to things is is not to sort of see us as separate from nature, but as part of it, and that culture must find a kind of happy relationship to that, where it is it supports one another, that nature is both within culture, and culture can actually be a part of the natural order.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. Is there any advice you'd give to the class of 2021? So students that will be graduating this year yeah I
1: think I think the best advice if if I could give myself advice from when I graduated it I think number one would be look after your friends and I I remember sort of vaguely thinking that many years ago uh thinking oh you know I wonder how important my friends are actually the further you go on in the arts the more important they become because they are the people who you will be working with in the future. They are the people who you will be who will be supporting you and you may be supporting in return. So one of the pieces of advice or a piece of advice I would give and something that I always use as one of my kind of values, if you like, is that whenever I get anything, hold out your hand and take someone with you because it's too easy whenever you get success just to run off with it. And I can tell you, everybody who does that regrets it because they end up on their own. Nurture your friends, look after them, and they'll look after you.
0: Okay, that's great. Thanks for that. So you've been listening to ArtCast with Matt G from Morley College, and that was Matthew Burroughs. Matthew, thank you very much for being guest today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.